You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect the relationships between mankind and the horse? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, the author of Broken, Fred M. Cray joins the conversation, followed by, a little later, Rory Vesey with a new edition of Rory's Island. I want to take you behind the curtain a little bit, and this is just my opinion in doing what I do in doing interviews and podcasts. There's the easy way, and there's the right way. Now, when I get a book sent to me, you usually get the book, you get a PR package, get the bio of the author, you get some quotes, and you get a list of suggested questions. Now, the easy way is, and I've been doing this long enough, just take the questions they give you and throw them back. And the author is so well adept at answering anything, but certainly his questions he's answered before and seen before. The right way for me is do my homework. Do research. Learn as much as I can. So when I sit down and read the book, I can kind of understand that. That being said, I want to welcome to the program the author of Broken, Fred M. Cray. Fred, welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Thank you for having me. So I want to start at the end, not the beginning. And yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. At the end of the book, you call what you write about the journey of America's coldest case. So let's go to the back end before we get to the beginning. What were you referencing? I'm referencing the fact that, you know, Aldar was a racehorse that ran in the 1978 Triple Crown against Affirmed and really was known as that horse that came in second to Affirmed. Uh, but he was a great breeding sire. And uh, November 13th, 1990, he died. Well, he didn't die. He, he had an accident in his stall and was subsequently euthanized. And the insurance paid $41.5 million. And at that, when, when that happens, the automatic public response would be, well, nobody's going to pay that kind of money if it wasn't an accident. But subsequent to that, there were a lot of questions raised, uh, which I go through the chronology in the book. But the short answer is the FBI got involved. There were two federal trials. And... Um, the question was never really answered. What really happened to Aladar? So, so my book tries to wrestle with that, giving us all the facts that we know. So we'll explore that. And by the way, I give you complete latitude. If I misstate something or we're missing something, you have your own podcast. So you know how this works. So yes, I do. So jump in any time that I let people know how to get the podcast based on the book. Well, I want to take a big question, big picture question first. Yeah. How would you describe the relationship between and the bond between the horse and the humans? In my mind, there's synergy there, no matter if it's a racehorse or a therapy horse. So you want to kind of wrestle with that first? Well, what I found was everybody, everybody loved Aladar. Um, I interviewed uh, most of his grooms and his trainer and his exercise rider. And there was, there was just a universal love for, for this horse, not only because of his personality, but for 
what he achieved and what he stood for. Um, Steve Cawthon, who was the um, jockey on a firm to, uh, who, who was Aladar's nemesis, described Aladar as one of as a horse who never gave up. And so he got beat all three times, but in each race, the margin of victory was less. And uh, some horses, if they lose a couple times in the same horse, they don't compete anymore. They just go, well, you know what? I can't beat that horse. I'm not going to try. But Aladar, the thing that he was known for was never giving up. And it's funny because that is really what drew me to him in the first place. When I first saw him run back in 1978 in the Flamingo Stakes at Hialeah and at the uh, uh, the second race after that, which was the uh, Florida Derby, I was just becoming a lawyer and I was really, you know, it was really hard for me to, 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 to grapple with that. Right. And I didn't, you didn't really get any, mentorship at this point they'd say here's the case go try it tomorrow and you didn't know anything you know you just graduated from the bar and so that determination that i saw him have on the track i think it's what made me fall in love with him in the way that i did but i'm getting off the topic so john beach who was the trainer was known to love aladar i think he loved aladar and wanted him to win more than he wanted than aladar himself wanted to win and there are pictures of, of John Beach holding the horse's head and conversations that John had with the horse itself. Um, but uh, Lewis Wolfson's son said that whenever you saw John Beach with Aladar, you knew they had a magic romance and everybody knew it. Um, Charlie Rose, who was his exercise rider, uh, uh, also loved Aladar. And there's a picture of him saying goodbye to Aladar uh, when he was leaving the Belmont's stables for the last time to retire. Right. They actually did a New York Times article on it, but the picture, I, I interviewed him about it, and he said, you know, I didn't know whether I could stand to, say, to stay and say goodbye because that's how much the horse meant to him. And uh, he, he did stick around, and there's another story about him going to visit him after he retired. You know, a couple of years after Aldar retired, he went back to visit him and he wondered, would the horse remember him? And so he stood at the side of the pad paddock and he said, hey, Allie. And Allie turned his head, his ears perked up, and he ran over to him right. as fast as he could. Right. And Charlie's standing there and he's thinking, ah, he remembers me. But now he's starting to worry, what if he can't stop? And when he, he stopped right at the edge of the, the fence, reared up on his hind legs and you know, it was a beautiful moment uh, that Charlie remembered. And Charlie loves him to this day. I, you know, I've interviewed him and he's just said, uh, you know, he never had a relationship with a horse like that. And the grooms too. I mean, one of the grooms was uh, Paul Pryor. He was his groom for like 10 years, 1980 to 1990. And uh, he said, you know, uh, when I heard he died, I cried. Um and there's a there's a relationship between a horse and a person that loves horses and a specific horse that has achieved all of these things on your behalf. You know, you say, hey, uh, Steve Cawthon said, you know, what they do for you 
what a horse does for you when they trust you. And uh, everybody said that about Aladar. And uh, I didn't really even know him, and I love him. So you mentioned Steve Cawthon. I remember him. He was the boy wonder, unaffirmed. And yes, other horses. on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And he left and ended up going to live in England, I guess, because of the pressure or whatever. So let's talk about the relationship between two very powerful entities. The jockey is extremely strong. The yes, horse, they're athletes. they're athletes. The horse is an athlete and very powerful. So how does that very strong jockey control, in a sense, a very powerful animal? Well, it depends on the horse. There's Part of horse racing is deciding when to let your horse run, run free, you know. So, you know, you just don't get on a horse and go, run as fast as you can to right. the finish. That, right. That's not how it happens. So, you know, the jockeys usually will discuss with the trainer, look, I want you to stick with, let's take Aldar and Affirmed, in the Belmont. Uh, they had come to the conclusion that they had to be closer to Affirmed uh, when he started to go, when he started his uh, stretch run, because he was too far behind. So far, they'd lost twice because they were too far back. So what has to happen is the jockey has to hold those reins, and he has to pull the horse back and hold him back and give him a signal, okay, now you can run as fast as you can to the finish. And so there's kind of this game of chicken going on, right. you know, where, you know, a firm jockey is saying, okay, I'm going to try and keep it as slow as possible. Uh, you look at the Belmont, it was a slow pace. Um, and there's Aladar saying, you know, I don't want to run myself out before the finish, but I can't let the pace be too slow because Aladar had one tool, and that was a crushing stretch run, whereas Affirm was more versatile. He could run from the front and keep the lead. He could run from the middle. So a lot of the of horse racing is, is this holding the horse back. It's called raiding the horse uh, during the race and making decisions on when it's time to make your sprint. Because the other thing that's involved is, is there room? Right. So you can be boxed in and say, look, I got to wait until something opens up. Yeah, tell my horse to take it to, to go. Here's what I learned. I'm, I'm going to refer to the art world. You're looking at a work of art, there's a focal point, and that's where your eye is drawn to. And then if you're really interested, you go to the edge and periphery and you see more things. You reference the reins. Now, if I watch a horse race, I, w I see the jockey, I see the horse. I would never know to look for switching the reins because that seemed to be a problem with Aladar. Aladar didn't like to switch the reins. I think he was the right okay, hand. You're, you're, let me just ex explain something to you. You're talking about changing leads. Leads, thank you, okay. changing leads. And the jockey doesn't, the jockey can try to decide that, but most horses instinctually know that when they're, you know, when they make a turn, they switch leads. And so Aladar was a horse that didn't do that. And so he ran all these triple crown races on his left lead. And his jockey said, well, maybe he's a lefty. But many of Aldar's fans wish that he had changed leads because they feel that if he had, he would have had a little bit more gas in the tank at the, at the stretch and may, may have won. Now, if you read the book and read about the Belmont, you know that uh, when they got to the, to the stretch run, Steve Cawthon felt that Aldar was out of gas. Right. And uh, at that point... Um, Aladar's jockey pushed affirmed over to the rail and tried to slow him down a little bit, but it forced 
uh, Cawthon to go and use his left lead, his left whip. And it was the first time he'd ever done that with a firm. And that was what made a difference in that race. That's why a firm won. So let's reset. I'm Larry Davidson. This is a podcast, Arpel Periscope. My guest is the author of Broken Fred Cray. The title, subtitle, Suspicious Death of Aldar and the End of Horse Racing's Golden Age. Take us back to, if you don't mind, Fred, November 13th, 1990. What happened to Aldar? Well, it's, it's pretty much shrouded in mystery, but uh, the interesting lead up to this is that t- the Tuesday before the week before Aladar got injured, the regular night watchman whose name was Cowboy Kip was approached by somebody in the Calumet Crown Vic and essentially pressured to take the night off that night. Right. And so this is the first, this wasn't known until the trials, which happened, you know, in 10 years later. When, when these guys testified in court. But basically, uh, this is what makes Calumet seem like they're involved in this pro- in this injury. I mean, who is going to be able to get in the Crown Vic of, of Calumet's Crown Vic and tell this guy to take the night off without Calumet management knowing it? Probably not happening. Um, so that night, a, a broodmare crew... Uh, guy named Alton Stone has to take over. And the problem is, is that Calumet has let go the guy who sits in the stallion barn all night to guard the stallions. Nobody knows this, but they've run out of money to pay this guy. Right. So six months before this injury, they used to have a guy sit in there all night. And all he did was sit in that stallion barn just all the time. When he was let go, that meant that the night watchman had to leave these horses alone for an hour at least as he went and checked the other barns on the 762-acre property. And so that night it was Alton Stone. And uh, Alton Stone left and came back. And he says to his first statement is he felt a premonition that he needed to check on Aladar. And when he went there, he to the to the stallion barn and looked at Aladar. The latch to the, to st- the stall door was closed. And he looked in there and Aldar had a broken right rear leg. And so in a short answer, that's what we know about what happened that night. The question is, how did it happen? Because if the latch is closed and Aldar has a broken leg and there's no evidence that he kicked anything, which there wasn't, there was no mark on the door. There was no mark on the cement. Uh, cinder blocks that were next to it. How did it happen? And so what happens is, you know, they call in the on-site veterinarian, the on-site broodmate manager. They're there within five minutes. Uh, Lundy shows up at some time. And uh, basically when a horse breaks this leg like this, 99% of the time you would put the horse to sleep right, right then. Right. But because of the value of this horse, you know, Lundy says, well, let's let's try to do something for him. And the Tom Dixon, who is the uh, the guy who represents Lloyds of London, uh, testifies in court that he would have had the surgery done regardless of whether Lundy wanted it or not, because uh, he because of the value of the horse and the horse deserved a chance. 
Um, so they do the surgery. Uh, the next day, they take the sling off. Aldar takes a few steps and then breaks his femur, and they put him to sleep. In, in terms of uh, Calumet and this horse, and I think you kind of addressed this question. If not, correct me. Is this particular horse, was he worth more dead than alive? Yes, but nobody knew it at the time. So on November 13th, 1990, nobody but Lundy in the bank and maybe some other, you know, the inside people there knew that Calumet was, you know, really on the verge of, of bankruptcy at that time because uh, they had sold Aldar's breeding rights in advance, but that didn't come out until uh, until Carol Flake wrote an article in Con Connoisseur Magazine that came out in 1992. And then that article didn't really get anybody's attention. But when Bill Knack put out his article in Sports Illustrated, almost two years to the day that Aladar passed away, that's when the allegations started that the only asset that Calumet had that they could make money from was Aladar. And in order to avoid the bank from foreclosing on the farm, the horse's insurance money would pay off half that loan and it would, they could go on with business as usual until they did another deal. So the over but nobody knew that. So the nobody knew that. The overview right now is it's a truism in a lot of situations is follow the money. So I believe that yes. certainly that's what you did and that's what I kind of learned because if there's a villain here, it's JT Lundy in a sense. And what's going on is stewardship with Calumet, which right. is very, very famous for horse racing. So yes. if you start to do your investigation, how close did you get to understanding the flow of the money and what went wrong? Oh, th that part is pretty undisputed. I mean, there was a book called Wild Ride that went over all this stuff uh, in 1994. Um, so it's very clear that Calumet uh, owed First City National Bank, you know, $50 million, that they owed other banks, that they borrowed from one bank to pay another bank. And, you know, so it's undisputed that at the time of this injury, that it, they were in dire straits. They had been in dire straits for probably a year and a half. They were, they were not even paying the insurance premiums on the horses. Um, when John Ward took over, he, which was, you know, Lundy quit, which was in April of uh, 91, he found that the only bills that had been paid were water and electric and all the other bills were due. And Lundy did a lot of things that were off the books. So he'd, he'd shake a hand and they'd make a deal. And when war took over, there were like five claims to the same deal. And he'd have to figure out who was the legitimate owner of a horse or whatever. So, there's no question that, that that was the case. The problem was nobody knew it. When they declared bankruptcy, all of it came out. And it wasn't until, you know, late 90s um, that the FBI started an investigation. And then uh, in Houston, there were two trials, one against the Night Watchman and one against L Lundy and Matthews for fraud. Both resulted in guilty verdicts. Um, but they never were really able to prove to my satisfaction, how Aladar could have been intentionally injured. So let's let's reset because you and Fred's been very generous with his time with us for the podcast, Dr. Periscope. A little mm -hmm. about him. He's a formal trial lawyer, mm -hmm. 
who now specializes in animal law. It has always been his life's work and purpose to give animals a voice. You give animals a voice in this particular book. That's very true. So I don't know much about horses and horse racing. They start racing when I believe they're two years old. I'm going to pull in fact, I know very little. At the age of two, how mature are they in terms of the stresses of training and racing? They do still get grow a little bit. They get a little heavier, maybe in their yeah. third or fourth years. So why are they being raced at two years old? Is it just to make some money? I mean, it seems to me, in my mind, it's a quite a stressful endeavor for the horse. Well, there's a lot of controversy about that. There are many people that take the position that you shouldn't race until they're three years old because they can, they can, you know, they can get micro fractures and their bodies are still growing. I don't know the, I don't know that there's a consensus about that. Um, there are other people that think that two years old is good and you're, you're strengthening them. Uh, so for example, you know, uh, there are people that say, well, you know, when, the, when they're growing up, they grow up better on a farm where the horses can roughhouse and, you know, gain, gain their uh, strength right, and right. abilities uh, at, a, at a young age. Um, I, I guess what you're getting at is the, the problems with horse racing right now and the, ter- and the question of, you know, why are so many horses being injured in, you know, at the, at, at the various racetracks? Yes. Is, is the breeding them too young? Is that a part of it? Uh, the problem with all this is there's not a consensus about all of this. Uh, and, you know, I've talked to trainers. I, I, and for the book, I hired a woman who, who actually was the one who investigated the Santa Anita horse deaths where they had, if I don't, if I'm not misremembering, misremembering 20 or 30 horses die during a meet. And, um, the problem is, is that when a horse has a problem, let's say they have a microfracture, it's hard to tell. And just looking at them run and, you know, examining them physically does not tell the entire tale. And, you know, sometimes it takes an MRI to look at it. Right. Uh, and, you know, my book is talks about, you know, the end of the golden age of horse racing. And one, the book refers to the 70s where, uh, you know, drugs had not infiltrated horse racing. There are a lot of people that feel there's nothing wrong with horse racing that getting rid of all the drugs wouldn't solve. Because if you if you medicate a horse who doesn't know how hurt he is, he's going to hurt himself. And drugs started in the 80s. That's when they started using Lasix and, and other performance enhancing drugs. Um, but if you look at the deaths that we've seen uh, and you look at the necropsies on the horses, you're not seeing, you know, horses that have drugs in them, that that's the reason why they got injured. Uh, there are some people that would go so far as to say, look, we need to take, uh, you know, MRIs or PET scans or some other kind of scan of each horse before they race to make sure that they're, they're sound. Um, you know, and then there's some trainers that say, look, you know, you're scratching my horse before the race because he's he doesn't look like he's running right. Uh, Forte is an example of that in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, you shouldn't be able to do that. I mean, it's a it's a very difficult issue that, that I don't know that will ever get solved. Horse racing will never be a zero injury uh, sport. Um, but I think there's been, I think right now there's been too many, too many 
mortal injuries racing that I think that, that a lot of people are, are uh, starting to say, I can't support the sport so anymore. You describe what happened to Alador, but I think I wouldn't want to see these pictures. I think you saw the pictures of the horse dead. I, I did see the pictures. Can you, can you talk about that? Well, it's really, it's really the time when, you know, words are supplanted by, by what you see. I'll never unsee them. I looked at them once and I've never looked at them again. Uh, and I, I remember it so vividly because I was talking to Terry McVeigh, who was one of the adjusters and he took out of his pocket this, this, this envelope and he pushed it over on the desk and he said, these are for you. And he didn't say, that's all he said. And I opened it up and I looked at him and there were like six to eight pictures. Aladar was laying on his side. He was covered in wood chips. There was a blue towel over his eyes and he was just laying there and he had a splint and it was just awful um, to think that it had come to this. Um, and, you know, it makes all the words um, irrelevant. It's what really happened and it really hits you. So part three of your book is your investigation which I yeah. think you started and put on hold and you can talk about the reasons why that's up to you. There's another part that's very disturbing in terms of your investigation. One of the people you talk to or investigate is a guy called the Sandman, Tommy Burns. Yeah. This is the real dark side of horse racing. Who was he? Not just horse racing. I mean, he, this was a guy, Tommy Burns was a guy who killed show horses. You know, he, he, he killed racehorses too, but most What's so disturbing about all of this is that the people that are paying him don't need the money. You know, if you're an, if you're an equestrian and you have a horse, uh, a lot of those guys, you know, are millionaires. They don't need to collect $25,000 or $50,000 from their insurance company. They, you know, it, it, it's, it's really difficult to swallow that the people who have stewardship of the horses are the ones that are writing the checks. Um, and so there have been people that told me, that have told me that, you know, the part of the book, I remember the exact pages where I, I you know, I've kind of discussed all the ways that horses have been killed. The reason it was necessary is because there were a lot of people in the, in the who were, I wanted to talk to, who would, and who in court said, I can't envision anybody killing a horse for, for money. Right, it right. doesn't happen, and so you have to make that point, whether you like it or not, whether it's whether it's the dark side or not. And it just it it comes down to the fact that you have a an animal who is a sentient being, who is property, and who can be used as such, and who has a value that is needed by the owner or wanted by the owner, regardless of all that. And the idea that, you know, when people say, oh, nobody would kill Aldor for the insurance money. Horses have been killed for $10,000. You know, and there's a tremendous incentive when a horse is insured for $41.5 million and the farm is going bankrupt. There's a tremendous incentive there and it's built in. And Tommy Burns, uh, was a very unique person to interview because he was clearly 
sad and repentant about what he had done. And, but he knew the ins and outs of it. And he knew how to do it. And, you know, I showed him the pictures that were taken by that night and the day after of of the barn door and everything, because I wanted to get, I guess you'd call it an expert in in this trade to tell me if, if what he saw was an accident or not, you know, and he basically said, look, anytime you kill a horse, you have to leave something that the insurance company can say, ah, that's how it happened. So here's the, here's the unanswered question. Do you know who killed Alidor? I don't. What I know is that, Whoever did it had horse knowledge. Um, I feel that if it wasn't Tommy Burns, it was somebody like him. And I think that uh, I think that there's no question about that. If you look on the if you look at the at the at the circumstantial evidence and the physical evidence, I don't think it's close. I don't think there's any other way to look at it. You know, when you have the night watchman being told, take the night off the, the night he was injured. And then subsequently, when the insurance company comes out to take pictures of the stall, they tell him you can't come in. Then they fix the stall. They completely throw away all the evidence. Right. And then they let the guy, Terry McVeigh, on and he comes in and he says, this stall is completely sanitized. There's nothing to take pictures of. How, and then you have all the circumstantial evidence the financial side, circumstantial evidence. I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion unless you are someone who just wants to take every possible inference and give it in favor of it being a, an accident. And, you know, one of the things that drove the case was the, the veterinarians. You know, Dr. Bramlage said, look, I, I think this was an accident. But in the context that he's seeing, he's coming to the farm it's got eight Kentucky Derby winners and two Triple Crown winners that to all buddy outside is, is making, you know, $150,000 per time that Aladar is covering a mare a uh, hundred times a year and nobody knows it's in financial trouble. Your first idea would be there's no, there's no incentive here yeah. to cut yeah. off an income stream from this valuable horse. So how can we figure out that this was an accident? And that's the you, you go looking for an accident. That's what you're going to find. And once you make that decision, you can never take it back. So, you in the book there are two trials, and people should read the book to get insight into these trials and why they're important to the overall story. At the end of the book, did you do your own mock trial? Did you go into the same courtroom and state your case? I thought that was really interesting. Well, I didn't actually go there. I, I went there when I got all of the um, – I went to that courtroom when I when I went to Houston to pick up all of the court transcripts. Um, and I – there are photographs of that courtroom on the internet. So um, – and there are photographs of it when the trial took place in, in 2000. So I took all those things and I, and I put them all together uh, – in that way without having to actually because they won't let you in there right in other words in a federal court you're you're searched when you go in all the courtrooms are locked and you cannot get in there unless you know you petition and you know you you'd have to go through i don't know i'm not sure even then you'd get in 
Uh, so yeah, I did that. That's the way I, I put that together. You and I have something in common, probably the only thing we have in common. You're talented and I'm not, but I know how to ask certain questions. We are both diehard dog lovers. And another yes. part of the book that got me when I guess your dog passed, was it Barney was his name? Yes, Barney. Barney. So I had to stop because I can totally relate to that because I've had animals very close to me. In fact, my daughter knows when I die, she's going to take my ashes with my golden retriever boulders ashes and we're going to be spread together. That's how much he meant to me. But I got a feeling that you can relate to that and why you're such an advocate yes. for animals in general, yes. that the relationship between a horse and a human is special, but for me, a dog and a person is, I, I can't describe it. So I'm going to let you follow up on that. Well, you know, it, it, when that happened, when my dog died, I think it was the, it was the worst because that particular dog was what I would call my soul dog. And, you know, right. I tried to analyze why is it, that dog is my soul dog. And what I came to was that dog represented everything I'm not. That dog represented just unambiguous confidence in every situation. It didn't matter what it was. He was confident. And I'm the kind of guy, you know, I'm not confident. I'm kind of back thinking in my head, you know, thinking about all the things that can be going on. And he gave that to me. Being around him made me feel hey, we know what we're doing. <laughs> I like that. You know, and he was confident even when he shouldn't be. I mean, that's the downside is, you know, he would run out and, you know, and do things. And I'd say, no, don't do that. One time he ran into the side of a truck. He got loose in the dog park. There was a fence and I didn't know it was broken. And he ran down there and I heard the screeching of tires and I heard boom. And I knew it was him. And I went, oh, God. And I ran out there and he's standing there looking at this truck. <laughs> and the guy says, it's not my fault. He ran right in the side of my truck, not, you know. And I said, oh, my God. And I took him to the vet and she said, look, he's hard-headed. He's fine. Um, but he's looking at me like, hey, that's what I meant to do. I was very confident, you know. <laughs> Sounds like you and, have a little bit of Marley and me inside of him. <laughs> but he was he was like a person. He, he would like – he'd look at you and say, now, you know what I want and – he would raise his eyebrow and that would be his first, you know, thing. Right. And then if he didn't get his way that way, he would paw you. And then he would bark, you know, and he was escalating what he was doing. But the dog meant everything to me. He'd been through, you know, my divorce, uh, you know, everything that happened to me. Um, and I'm ashamed to say this, but I was more affected by his death than my parents' death. I can uh, I can understand that. I know people will say that's awful to say that, you know, how can that be? But I cried longer and harder for Barney. Um, my parents died that same year. Um, there's not any emotional baggage with a dog. You know, a dog accepts you, loves you. You can, you know, you can be a failure a, a particular day. You can, they don't criticize you. They don't, I mean, it's just a different it's a different kind of love that, frankly, I needed from, because I didn't get it growing up. Uh, and so it was more valuable to me. 
Um, I, I just, it, it's the truth. That's all I can say. So we have an episode still in the pipeline. The book is called Wonder Dog by Jules Howard from England. He just won a major literary award. So he really gives you insight about how intelligent, intuitive dogs are. And it's a yeah. fascinating study. So we always allow the guest to correct any mistakes that I make. So during the course of our conversation, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So what did I miss and what do you need to correct based on our conversation? Nothing. I think everything went well. I think, you know, you stayed you stayed in your lane. And Thank you. <laughs> I stayed in my lane. I, you know, it's funny. People think because I wrote this book that, you know, I was a horse racing aficionado from the day I was born. And I've learned, hey, I got to stay in my lane because there's guys that have forgotten more than I'll ever know about horse racing, you know, uh, betting, you know, uh, all that stuff. I just got to stay in. I know a lot about this one thing. And that's it. Well, the book is terrific. The book is called Broken. My guest is Fred M. Cray. Fred, thank you so much. And I love the book, not because you're in front of me. I really love the book. I learned a lot. And the takeaway for what I try to do is every time I sit down with somebody, teach me. Let me come away with something I didn't know. So, Fred, thank you so much. Well, what I want to, the only thing I want to say is if you want to hear, you know, all the interviews that form this book I recorded and I have a podcast out where you can hear like John Beach talking about how much he loves Aldor. You can hear Paul Pryor talk about when Aldor met the queen and he was there and to hear all these people talk uh, in their own words and with their own emotion is really a deeper, a deeper thing than I could say in words. So if you go to my website, fredmcray.com and you, you click on the podcast link, you can find it there, or you can just go to Apple and type in Aladar and Broken, and it'll come up. But I really recommend it. It really is uh, – it's professionally uh, edited. There's music. There's uh, – I just love it. I was not a podcast guy before this, but now uh, I've had people say, wow, the podcast really, you know, really uh, was an emotional experience for me. So we'll put the word out for one – podcast producer to another. Once again, thank yes. you so much. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. After the break, a new edition of Rory's Island with Rory Vesey. Be right back. Five, four, three, two, one. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. I am really thrilled to bring her back. Here's another edition of Rory's Island with Rory Bessie. 15 minutes away from Shelter Island and about an hour or so away from Riverhead is the Center for Therapeutic Riding. It's known as Sea Tree. It's the place where I work, although I don't have any special needs, at least none that have been actually diagnosed. But as soon as you pull up, as soon as you start to approach the little red barn, you feel the therapy, you feel the peace and the serenity. And you see Mosley in the paddock, look up and say, hello, I'm ready to order. He wants his supper. They say in the horse world, there's no evil a canter cannot cure. And that's true. But what if you can't even sit on a horse, let alone canter? 
The truth is that the touch of a forelock or the look into their soulful, vulnerable eyes does touch your soul. For a child or for an adult who has cognitive or physical or emotional disabilities or cancer, there is no substitute for what equines can do. So I'm going to yield my time to Mosley, a halflinger pony who always has a lot to say. Hi, my name is Mosley, and I am the self-appointed mayor, head honcho, senior member of Sea Tree in Sagaponic. This is my job, my life's purpose, my magnum opus. Let me warn you, I am self-educated and smart. There are a lot of big words in my head. I was fortunate, I didn't have to work. I'm loved by my human for just being me, but she has a great ability. She is a certified path therapeutic riding instructor. Racehorses run for their lives and they breed for their lives. Other horses give children and bigger children lessons in order to go to horse shows where they jump all kinds of obstacles, race barrels and poles, show off our ballet and dressage. I was trained to drive. Actually, I was driven as I pulled a carriage for a reason unclear to me across fields. But that's just it, isn't it? Horses don't really know how to be anything other than who we are, a horse, a part of a herd that roams in search of pasture and water. We can live without humans. But humans have made us part of their herd. We mostly accept it and submit to it because the alternative I have heard can be awful. But like the dogs and cats, we hope a pact is in place. We serve and you care, even when we are older. Here at Sea Tree, we the horses serve and care. And if you don't believe that, come watch a lesson. We haven't been through years of intense training or have read books on the subject. We know and we feel the special needs of a child or an adult. And so we walk, we stand, we stay calm, we lower our heads and nuzzle through anything that can happen. All the students love to look at me in particular. I am a halflinger pony. I won't go into the bloodlines because frankly, who cares? All of us halflingers look alike. We are gorgeous. We have golden chestnut coats with flax into white manes and tails. And oh, how I still love my mane blowing in the breeze when I trot. We are a hardy but elegant group and can do all kinds of equestrian sports, but we are very good at therapeutic riding. I was born in Ohio in Amish country and I was meant to work. I was sold to one woman who put me in front of the carriage and then Karen found me. Horses don't get to choose their jobs and these same jobs can wear on our bodies. There was a famous dressage rider in Europe who purchased a horse, spent a lot of money on him. This horse did not want to do dressage. He just didn't like it. So he retired him. He was only five years old. He put him in a beautiful pasture in a barn and he was treated just as well as any of the other horses. And his fellow equestrian said, why would you do this? Why don't you sell him? And he said, I really like him. I want him to have a nice life. I made a mistake. I thought he could do this. He doesn't want to do it. They said, oh, come on. He needs a job. He wants a job. And the dressage rider said, I don't think so. I don't think he's sitting in the pasture saying, gee, I didn't live up to my potential. He's a horse. He knows nothing about what I was trying to achieve. And more recently, there was another story. McLean Ward 
is one of the top United States equestrians, a hunter, jumper, rider. And with his beloved Annie, he had a chance to win the elusive Rolex Grand Slam. It pays $1.5 million. He entered the ring with Annie. She's 17 years old, a lot of miles on her. And he just felt she didn't have it in her. Right in that moment, he felt, though no matter how hard she's been digging, she doesn't have it anymore. And he pulled her up, he saluted the crowd, he walked out and he retired her. That's great horsemanship, but that doesn't happen all that often. Not in horse showing, not in horse racing, not in any of the horse disciplines. Land is scarce, hay is expensive, and veterinary care is very expensive. Think of it, if your dog takes three pills a day, we would probably need 18 of those same pills to get us through. Sea tree not only helps the children and adults, but gives horses who might be without a job and in danger of losing their lives, a place to be and to work. It is our second and best act. We all sense the needs of our riders, of the children who cannot walk and get to navigate and use our legs to go somewhere. Some special needs children will only get in the car when they know they're coming here. For the parents, this is a rare chance to watch their child enjoy an activity and for a short time be on top of the world instead of struggling in it. Others need it for the physical therapy. The riders develop core strength and balance, and it's a fun and empowering way for them to do it. My human, Karen, Karen Boxnell, that's what they call her, runs the program. We play games and have summer camp. We do it in a way that is fun, and I always hear Karen saying, remember, we are the only PATH-accredited riding center on the East End. With my golden coat, the kids use chalk and they draw pictures all over me. They colored my flaxen mane and I became a rainbow pony. They oohed and nod and I stood and listened. I keep them feeling safe and connected, but I don't do all the work. I have a team. There is Lucky, a gray pony, you'd probably call her white, with a black mark across her face. He came with noodles and like all our horses, they come here on a free lease. It is hard and expensive to keep horses so their humans can still own them, but have them cared for somewhere else. Noodles is thrilled to be here and the kids love him because he looks like a draft horse only in pony size. Lucky has to be reminded I'm in charge, so he tries to pull rank on Archie. Archie is not a pony. He is a Cleveland Bay horse and pretty tall. He used to be a field hunter, but his legs were getting tired but he loves taking his riders gently through their paces. And then there is our only mare or small quarter horse named Gypsy Honey Queen. Gypsy is beautiful with a fine head and she may even be as smart as me. At the end of the day, we settle in for our suppers. Our lives depend on the supporters of Sea Tree. Lessons pay for only a fraction of our hay and health and medical care. Plus there's rent and maintenance on the barn and the fields. Sea Tree gives scholarships at reasonably priced lessons. The human equine caregivers do not get very much pay. And at the end of the day, you can hear us munching on hay that somebody was generous enough to help pay for. I make the most noise. I remind the workers to close the doors, to fill the buckets. And we rest at night knowing unlike so many horses, we are safe. We're older, but we're okay. 
The best part is that we bring joy and strength and hope and comfort to our riders and their families. But horses have always done that, haven't we? It's just that not all of us were rewarded with a life of love. I want to thank Fred Gray, author of Broken. I want to thank Rory Vesey from another great edition of Rory's Island. I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time, bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisofaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to find-